Why do you say that, Father? You aren't afraid, are you? No. But I respect some of the superstitions of others. Often they are founded in fact. Broadcasting live from our Sanctum Sanctorum in Venice, California. This is the Sixth Sense Society. I'm your host, Krista, here with our producer, Michael. And today we welcome back Reverend Jim McGrath, who, for those that don't know him, is the associate pastor and artist in residence at Gateway Christian Church and is also a screenwriter and playwright. But before we get started, oh, and our topic today is going to be about miracles in the Christian tradition. But before we get started, Michael has a few announcements. Hey, everybody, and uh, thank you guys so much for supporting our show. It's really awesome. We just passed 775 subscribers, so we're getting closer and closer to that magical first thousand. So if you're listening to our show and you're enjoying what we do, please take a minute and subscribe. It helps us tremendously, and it's just nice for the morale, so please do that. Um, We've got some great shows coming up. Um, Next week, we have Lama Kathy Wesley, and she will be talking about how to handle uncertainty in changing times from a Buddhist perspective. So I think we all need that. I think that there's a lot of big changes afoot, and I think change is hard for a lot of people. So I think it's a very timely topic. So tune in for that one, and Lama Kathy is always awesome. And then we end the month with Krista with Spell It Out and uh, whatever her free-for-all topic will be as we, we kind of wrap up the month. Um, we're still kind of setting our schedule a little bit for July, but we have some great people lined up. Our friend Jacqueline is a, a tremendous healer and does a, a modality of healing that involves some Kabbalah. and She's going to be doing a, a show with us. Um, we're going to have Lon Duquette back and doing occult stuff. Um, and maybe our friend Chris from the Fraternity of Hidden Light, FLO, who's going to come back, and he's also going to do some cool stuff on, on something occult-related with us. So we're going to make announcements about that in the very near future, and we have uh, that sort of firming up at the moment. Um, go to our website, get all the information. It is SixCentsSociety.com, S-I-X-T-H, all spelled out, SixCentsSociety.com. Um, and while you're there, um, look for the link on our website to buy us a coffee on Ko-Fi. So if you, again, enjoy the show, it helps us a little bit with our, our overhead, our production costs and whatnot, and we definitely appreciate that too. So without further ado, I'm going to kick it back to Krista and Jim, and have a great show, guys. Great. Thank you, Michael. Welcome, Jim. Oh, I don't have Jim. Hey, there he thanks is. for having me. I have my <laughs> um, There he is. I have a dog in the room who makes noises, so I I was muting until the last possible moment. Oh, that's okay. We accept the dog noises. Yeah, good, good. (laughs) So uh, let's get right into the topic because I think it's a really great one and I think you're going to have a lot to offer. Uh, What would you say constitutes a miracle? That's a really good question. And uh, a lot of it, I think, has to do with point of view. Uh, in other words, I'm calling it a miracle because according to the world that I perceive, it wouldn't have happened. Um, the, uh, I, I had a personal experience once when I was driving and my mind was weighed down with a lot of stuff and I was thinking over into the next five minutes, which is not the way to do it. And, uh, I had a collision with a bus and my experience of the collision was nil. In other words, I had the sensation of I'd gone into a skid. And then uh, really the next thing I knew, I was emerging from the passenger side of my car somehow. And people were gathered around saying, why aren't you dead? And I looked behind me and my car was sort of sandwiched into the edge of the front edge of the bus. And the driver's side was completely crushed into the steering wheel. So I had no idea how I emerged from that accident or how, I, you know, so I perceived it as a miracle. I'm like, you know, God picked me up and put me over here. Uh, there may be other explanations for it. But that again, it was just, it, that was my perception. So if you are watching someone 
heal somebody with a touch or whatever. Uh, somebody that you've known all their life was had some infirmity, and suddenly you see it gone, and it's because and you observe somebody touched them. You would perceive this as a miracle. Sure. But for the healer, it might be a very everyday kind of a thing. It's interesting when uh, there there does seem to be healings in general. If you once you get into looking at healings that are not connected to sort of regular medicine, there's tons of examples, and there are healers in time that seem to be able to help to stimulate that kind of healing. But it's not consistent. So that's the thing, you know, where you can have someone very devote praying and nothing happens for them. What what do you think, in your opinion, or just thoughts about why does it seem to work for some people? Uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could pretend to have a good answer for that. Um, and, uh, you know, they would be guesses. And, and guesses are not the same thing as insights. Uh, the, I, I think that, um, I, I read a novel once I was adapting it into a screenplay. I was involved in this project. The novel was called the touch. I forget the name of the author, but it was about a doctor who was like a society doctor who, who had some freak, uh, electromagnetic experience by accident. And suddenly he had the power to heal people by touching them. And it was something that ruined his life in a sense, because once you have that ability or discover that you are someone who has that ability, would it not be a moral imperative that you spend every waking second just having people line up, come to your door, heal them, heal them, heal them, as many as you possibly could given your lifetime. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that it's, it's something that's not easy I think if, if, if you're a healer, it's not a question of being that easy where you touch somebody and they're healed. And it is um, in, in Christ's time, we're going to be talking about the miracles of Christ. Uh, he didn't spend every waking moment doing that. Uh, but we are told in Gospels that there are places where he'd go into a town and just heal anybody that came up to him. Uh, but I think the most significant thing about the Christ's healing is his message that he gives out a couple of times saying, it's not me, it's your own faith that is healing you. Uh, and that uh, that's how a lot of the healing stories are capped in the gospel with him saying that. Uh, so uh, the idea of Christ's healings would be that it's God and, and it's your faith in God that is healing you, not me personally. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, the the one the healings that I like that that are in John, and I know you're going to go through some of them, is where he can just speak from a distance. And uh, the the boy that was ill, I believe. Yeah, he's he's well. He's well. He's fine. Yeah. yeah. So that that was fascinating. Uh, and do you think that um, it's also the relationship people have with Jesus? As well, the conduit I, of, of yes, God? Clearly the, that participation is needed um, for the healing to happen. I mean, there, there's this one point where he goes back to his hometown and nobody's listening to him and he is unable to perform healings because there was, there was no faith. The, the people that he would be healing were not participating. Uh, but there's all these other inst instances where people, forbidden people, lepers, whatnot, uh, approached him for healing with the idea that he could do it, with the strongly held idea that he could do it. And these were the people that he, you know, he says, uh, uh, you've, you know, you've already done it yourself, basically. It, it reminds me the concept of having the faith. I remember one, I forget which Buddhist teacher was, he was talking about the Western mind and he thought one of the obstacles was they didn't have this confidence in their practices, that the practice could actually do what it says it, it can do. And that that was really important. And I think there's some truth about the Western mind lacking that that kind of confidence that 
the ability to kind of let go of the rational when you need to without being gullible? I think the the thing that the word faith is used repeatedly, and I think a more important word would be understanding, uh, that you understand the process of healing in this way. And that then, you know, Jesus would be seen as somebody who understood. And, but, but to go back to, to sort of the general Orthodox Christian way of viewing the healings, which, which is why you have me here, right? I yes. mean, that's, that's my area. Um, and uh, I think that traditionally, even though at the end of the book of John, and we'll get back, back to this in a minute, you have Jesus saying to the disciples, these and greater things you will do. And, you know, that part of it, was sort of left out of organized religion. And, and sort of the Christian mu- movement viewed it as a test of faith that you believe that Christ did these things and that the purpose of the healings or the miracles in general was to prove that Christ was the Son of God, whatnot. So you believe he was able to do these things, but there, there's been no progress in, in Orthodox Christianity for you know us doing these things the the idea is that we're sinners we're mortals he was he was the son of god not us so uh so it, it's in a sense calling the miracles kind of sets them apart from our day-to-day reality this right. is something jesus did back when because jesus was jesus he could walk on water he could do these things uh but the idea of it is a proof of God. And, and then there was the view that each miracle that Christ performed was a teaching. Was he, he, he did it to teach something. Then in the, in the 18th century, with the, the time of what we call the Enlightenment, uh, represented by John Stuart Mill, Voltaire, and Thomas Jefferson, uh, there was the idea that to believe in the miracles was not necessary. Uh, it was more necessary to focus on Christ's teachings than to look at the magic acts he did. Uh, and, you know, Thomas Jefferson famously put out the Jefferson Bible, where he just takes out the miraculous stuff and leaves, leaves the teachings. So that became what was viewed as liberal Christianity, was the idea that the the miracle stories, you don't have to believe them, uh, the, that they are in some way metaphoric. And, you know, the idea of like the, the feeding of the 5,000, that was metaphoric for, you know, you should want to feed the poor. And so it was a teaching rather, rather than you don't have to believe it really happened. Uh, so th- those are the two points of view, the evangelicals who say you have to believe everything happened exactly the way it happened or you're not going to heaven, and the, and the, the, the liberal point of view that uh, you don't have to believe it in order to believe in God or you know, in order to understand the teachings. Uh, and then in American religious history, we have what I consider to be the more Christ-like point of view, uh, represented by Mary Baker Eddy. That, and, and she took up the cudgel of, of, of what it says at the end of the book of John, that this is part of our ministry, is to, you know, to find out how to heal people and to heal them. It does, when you just look at it straightforward as, um, a, you know, a storyline, it does seem to me that as a layperson, the healing is a huge part of Jesus. And I think we talked about it in another episode about Jesus the healer and, um, you know, also sort of um, getting rid of the demons and things like that. And uh, it, it it's odd to me that the liberals, because I consider myself liberal, and I, I guess I have a conservative view of Jesus, because <laughs> I believe in miracles. <laughs> well, but I, when, when I use the word liberal, I'm not talking about the way Fox News uses the word liberal. I'm talking about the way it was 
came into usage in the 18th century, which was, you know, the uh, very much being influenced by the philosophs or the Age of Enlightenment by Voltaire, by John Stuart Mill, uh, which was we take basically the ethics of Jesus and John Stuart Mill had this idea that politics should involve the greatest good for the most people rather than a king just deciding the way it's going to be for everybody. Uh, that it, it was more of a concentration on those teachings rather than the supernatural aspects of it, which put a lot of scientific minds off. Sure. So Mary Baker Eddy, I have to say, we've mentioned her before, and I am now, because of you, I would say, fascinated with her life and who she was. So let's uh, talk a little bit more about her. Yeah, Mary Baker Eddy, uh, she comes along in the uh, 19th century and uh, lives about 10 years into the 20th century, and she's mostly known as the founder of Christian Science and the Christian Science Church. Uh, but she's much more important than that in the, in the field of mental science in general. And, and she's, I see her as part of the theosophist movement in that time. And she was certainly primarily influenced by the Bible all of her life, but uh, also in that was open to a lot of things. I mean, she was uh, one of the additions of science and health uh, with Key to the Scriptures, which was her, her most important book that has been read all over the world and probably more than most other books. Uh, but she quoted the Vedanta and uh, the Bhagavad Gita and was very involved in Hinduism at one time. And then in later editions, she took that out, you know, and she, she uh, uh, but she was also a part of the spiritualist world mm -hmm. for many, many years. And, and she had her own healing experience. She did. She did. Um, and this was largely after that. But by the time that happened, in other words, she was very familiar. She'd studied under Phineas Quimby. And uh, I, th I, I think a very important thing about her, if you look at her life, was that from the time she was a little girl, she had a very authoritarian father. Uh, her father was a, a judge and a strict Calvinist and was said to have uh, been joyous at the death of Abraham Lincoln. Whoa. You see some kind of <laughs> idea what kind of guy he was. Uh, and not that he believed in slavery, but he was a strong believer in states' rights. And so even though he was up there in Yankee land, he uh, very much uh, in his heart uh, agreed with the Confederacy. Uh, but he... Uh, from a very early age, she would argue a point. She, she would, when she believed something, she would argue it to the grave and not back down. And the not backing down was something that was very difficult for her father, who was a strict Calvinist and believed that she was going to hell and often told her so. And the, the, her battles with her father, I think, affected her whole life. Uh, she was very strongly, although she was always religious, she was very strongly anti-Calvinist, anti the idea of hell. And uh, when she, uh, her husband, her first husband, she married young, her first husband passed away from yellow fever. And she all, herself always had a lot of health problems, always. Uh, and and that came from her, her childhood with her, her battles with her father. And she would get comfort and love and healing from her mother. And, but to get that, she had to be really sick. You know, that's, that's what it took. She was also the youngest child of a, of a large family. So I think for her getting attention at all was an issue. Uh, because by the time she came along, her parents were older and less interested in, in doting on a child. Uh, but she always, her whole life, insisted on being heard and insisted on exploring every criticism she had of what she was being told. And when she studied later under Phineas Quimby, who was a great 
greatly read and regarded mental scientist who used uh, hypnotism in healing. Uh, and she was very critical of that. And even though she was his student, she fought with him all the time. And years later, he came around to her point of view and took credit for it. He took credit for her point of view? Yes, for creating it. Oh. Uh, and and uh, she had battles like that all of her life uh, because she would just absolutely stand up to people. And that wasn't what a w- woman did in, in that at that time, you know, so she was, uh, she was remarkable in that way. Uh, but anyway, to get to, to what she was saying, to what you were saying earlier, that she had an accident in 1866, she slipped and fell on some ice in Lynn, Massachusetts. And she got from that a very bad spinal injury. And she says in her autobiography, quote, on the third day thereafter, I called for my Bible and opened it at Matthew 9, 2. And behold, they brought to him a sick man with palsy lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven. And she says, as I read, the healing truth dawned upon my sense. And the result was that I arose, dressed myself, and ever after was in better health than I had before enjoyed. That short experience included a glimpse of the great fact that I have since tried to make plain to others, namely, life in and of spirit, this life being the sole reality of existence. She wrote in her autobiography called Retrospection and Introspection, that she devoted the next three years of her life to biblical study and what she considered the discovery of Christian science. She said, I then withdrew from society about three years to ponder my mission, to search the scriptures, to find the science of mind that should take the things of God and show them to the creature and reveal the great curative principle, deity. So that, uh, that experience began her exploration of scripture as a key to healing, which then later led to the founding of the Christian Science Church. And in the, in the mother church in Boston, she was the first pastor. And she, according to witnesses, did a lot of healing and a lot of teaching about how to heal, which, which was, I think, the more important part of her work uh, was sending, you know, healers out into the world as many as she possibly could, you know, as opposed to just doing all the healing herself and planting the seed in others. Uh, and she was a great writer, wrote many books, great teacher. And at the end of her life, she was in so many struggles. The, the, uh, she saw her church grow to be worldwide church with Christian science reading rooms going up all over the world. So that when you think about that and, and how quickly that spread, uh, the newspaper, right. the Christian science monitor, which was a huge success, uh, and, and later won seven uh, Pulitzer Prizes. This was a lot of money, if you think about it. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the kingdom of Christian science was a lot of money. And toward the end of her life, she had a lot of people trying to wrest the, the control of all that money and all that wide church movement from her. Uh, so she was in constant struggle in that way. Uh, she had, um, she writes about animal magnetism. Are you familiar with that principle? I've read that part about her, and I thought, you know, that sounds very much like magic. Well, it is similar to Aleister Crowley or, you know, different things like that. But she obviously did believe, and I I would see it as an erroneous belief, but she did believe that you could do the opposite of Christian science. You know, rather than healing people with your mind, you can tear other people up with your mind. Right. And she believed it was being done to her. And uh, the uh, this caused people to call her insane toward the end of her life. She lived a long life. I mean, she lived to be 89, which in in those days was a long life. Well, you know, women have constantly had to fight against the insanity thing. 
And that really bothered me when I read that. And, and in, you know, especially like in the early, like what, 17, 18, early 1900s, what they would do to women, you know, it, it's real. And, and still it happens. It, it's to me, certainly a um, part of sexism is she's crazy. And, and, and uh, I don't think I personally agree with her on the concept because of Deanne Fortune's book on psychic attacks, where she gives a very specific example of what happened to her as a young woman. That was a psychic attack. And I don't know that she had fortune does. Yeah, she gives she didn't know what it was. It was uh, I I think it was at a, a teacher or something, but she goes into it in detail and it, it's a very cruel story, but it literally, um, she has a breakdown from it. And I also have done some other research where there has been some really strange, even deaths with people that are being psychically attacked. So I, I don't know that she was right about the amount of the attack, but uh, one of, uh, I looked at her numerology and very, just briefly, and she, her path, her life path is a, was a 35-8. And eight is considered, at least in some numerology, to be a, a path of power. And learning, it's not like you're going to have power, you're going to deal with power, the abuse of power, how to use power, and that she built these, um, you know, the, the, the things that she built, that's a very eight idea. And then the three and the five make it a certain kind of an eight. The three is super creative, and five can be connected to healers. So I can see where that was part of her destiny to learn about power and um, to hold power, to lose power. But I, I don't, you know, and, and, and I don't, I think she's looks like she, but some people overly demonized her mental health. It looks like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and there was money at stake, you know, there, there was getting control of that huge kingdom of Christian science. Uh, so, you know, that, that would be a typical thing to do, but th- you're right, is that, that that is a way in which women were constantly treated. She stood up to it always. I mean, she, you know, she was, uh, she was not easy to back down. And I imagine if somebody was practicing animal magnetism on her, that they probably received some bad aftershocks themselves. Yeah. Because, uh, she, she had... Uh, she had an amazing spirit, always, always. And her, you know, she, she redefines miraculous because of her belief that the only reality is spirit. And, you know, she says, uh, these are just some quotes, uh, divine love always has met and always will meet every human need. So that was her understanding, and it's a bold statement, uh, but it's the basis of being able to heal, uh, according to her. Uh, Spirit is the real and eternal. Matter is the unreal and temporal. Happiness is spiritual, born of truth and love. It is unselfish, therefore it cannot exist alone, but requires all mankind to share it. Health is not a condition of matter, but of mind. And with this point of view, she very much goes back to the way it was viewed in Jesus's time, because you break down the different miracles that Jesus did with this is a healing, this is an exorcism, but basically the exorcism and the healing are viewed in the same way. Because at that time, and we do not believe this today, but at that time, somebody who had a physical handicap or a physical problem, it was due to sin. It was caused by sin. Yeah, and and I'd like, I I was interested in that when I was reading, he'd say, you know, Jesus would say, sin no more, sin no more. And so what... Forgiveness was part of it. What is, what the, what is a sin? Uh, I think it... I think we assume we know what it is, but what what is a sin according to the Christian view of it? Well, according to the Christian view, uh, the Orthodox Christian view, a sin is the breaking of one of God's major laws, and the uh, you know the you read the book of Deuteronomy. We're all sinners every day. 
uh, or if you take the law as being the Ten Commandments, that would be, you know, you, you, you kill, that's a sin. You steal, that's a sin. You worship an idol, that's a sin. Uh, you can view it that way. In Christ's life, he reduced it to two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. Uh, so from that point of view, breaking one of those rules would be a sin. I think in Mary Baker's Eddy view, in Mary Baker Eddy's view, a sin was just a matter of wrong thinking or, 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 or bad thinking, and that a sin could be forgiven, that a sin would go away by simply changing your thinking. Hmm. You change the thinking, and uh, the, 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 the sinful thought or the bad thought is no longer affecting you physically. Yeah, that that's more. I think what like Casey would see. Uh, I think the, because yes, you know, everything yeah. mind is builder and yes. Uh, however, that you know to change your thoughts continuously, it's way harder to, to do it than it looks. <laughs> you know, it's that's it. It's it, it sounds so easy, but <laughs> but it involves great spiritual discipline. And this is why when you talk about why, you know, some people are able to heal some of the time, but not all of the time, whatever, it, it, it's like writing, you know, it, it, sometimes your writing's good, sometimes it's not good. It's, 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 there, there's an artistic discipline to doing it and it doesn't always work. And it's, it's, it's not easy. And I, I would say the same thing would, would appertain to healing. It's, it's, it takes a lot of spiritual discipline and mental discipline. Keeping, you know, through the Mary Baker Eddy system is keeping your thought in a certain way, you know, at all times. Yeah, and, and I think one has to practice some patience towards oneself as well. And, you know, that it, it's a discipline. It's also you're literally rewiring your brain and mind. And that can take a long time. And then certainly you can slip. And there's all different ways that we slip, including the impact of society, the impact of who we hang out with, uh, some that we can't avoid. And say it's a, a family member that we have to be around that's difficult. Uh, so, but that, 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 is interesting because it shows sort of a, the evolution of a concept, which I personally uh, believe that consciousness itself is evolving. And so our understanding of it and how we then look at the Bible or Jesus's story that we might see things differently. Consciousness is all. I mean, uh, that's consciousness is such an important part. Of it. That's why I started this with point of view. Uh, the, the, what, what comes into your awareness is is all that you have. You know, it's it's just that, that that's what you've got to work with. If if you look back at at the Jesus's miracles, you know, you see that there are times when he could not, and he didn't, according to the Gospels, anyway, he didn't spend a lot of time you know, feeling bad about that or feeling negative about it, it seems to me that it was science to him. It was, you know, it was, you know, well, I couldn't heal anybody here because they had no faith. They weren't working with me on it. So he moves on to the next town, you know, where, where he can heal, where, where, where he finds people who are ready to be healed, who are properly prepared themselves. And there's also in the gospels proof that he went through a lot of spiritual discipline that he put time and physical space into uh you know being alone and disciplining his mind like the buddha yeah exactly exactly like the buddha it was not it you know with the the four noble truths we're you know it, it was a satori in a moment but it was years in the making so you had mentioned we were talking before the show that there was one miracle that appears in all four Gospels, and what oh, is yeah. that one? Let me find that. Hold on. Sure. Uh, the uh, I liked uh, 
I liked all the miracles. I I only like I, I told you too before the show. I just reread the Gospel of John quickly to get my mind into the show, and there's quite a bit of miracles in that one. Yes, and and I think the most uh, the most meaningful in terms of teaching. Okay, the one that's in all four, the only one that's in all four is Jesus feeding 5,000 plus women and children. Interesting. So that's the, the, the fact that he's, he's able to, out of a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, create enough food to feed, feed 5,000 people. And I'm sure that number means something. It's so specific. I wonder what it means. The, the, yeah, it's, and, and it's in all four Gospels, the same. Uh, that, that was, I guess it's understandable uh, because it was such a public event. Right. Uh, you know, and, and that, was, that was like his Woodstock. That was when he got his biggest audience. And, you know, once it was done, they started saying, well, when's the next, you know, when's the next feeding going to be? And he said, no, no, no. I'm going to bring, I'm going to feed you with living bread so that you never get hungry again. And that's when they all turned on him. That's when they walked away and they said, ah, show's over, you know, the, uh, and, and he was then reduced to an audience of his immediate, um, coterie of followers. Uh, and he was fine with that. He said, okay, now it's time to get into some in-depth teaching. I, I'm surprised that, I, I suppose maybe some of the other miracles maybe didn't happen then. Like, you would think, like, raising the dead, isn't that pretty awesome? Well, that, <laughs> that there's raising the dead stories in every one of the Gospels. It's not the same story. Oh, okay. But uh, but you have uh, you have in the book of John, you have the most famous one, uh, the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that story involves Lazarus is dying. They call for him. His, uh, his sister calls for Jesus. Jesus is busy somewhere else. Lazarus dies. When Jesus does arrive, she upbraids him, in a sense, saying, well, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. So thanks. You know, and he says... Uh, you know, he, he goes to the where Lazarus has been laid out, and he says, you know, arise, and Lazarus arises. That's the most famous one. So he'd been dead for a period of time, and, and Jesus commands him to rise, and he does. There's, an, you know, there's another story, which is in the three synopsis synoptic gospels uh and repeated in each one so it appears twice is jesus raising jairus daughter back to life and that's one where he doesn't even have to go he just you know the the he says oh she's the father comes to jesus says she's fine and he goes home and she is fine uh she's living again and that's one where jesus mentioned it is you know it is your faith it is her faith that that caused this and then you have Jesus bringing himself back from the dead. Yes. That's the one. See, that's the one that as a, as a confessing Christian, you pretty much have to believe. If you don't believe that, there is no Easter, you know? I mean, that, and so if you believe that, I think it opens you to the others. Well, it's interesting, too, to me, um, again, I'm not a Christian, but uh, the emphasis is different for different people on some emphasize that he died in the crucifixion and all that, which to me is very kind of scary and troubling, um, whereas to me, the idea of resurrection is very appealing and, and interesting and makes me want to think about Jesus and how is this possible and uh, but there seems to be different emphases on Jesus who died for us and Jesus that rep, uh, resurrected for us. Well, but uh, when you say the emphasis on he died, uh, it's like the more you emphasize that, the more it's a miracle 
when he rises. And I think that's the Catholic trip is you got to really get into the suffering and the death and the, the Mel Gibson aspects of, <laughs> uh, you know, how he suffered and the detail it's it, on the Catholic cross. You have a suffering Christ with the crown of thorns on the Protestant cross. There is no Jesus on the cross because he has risen. And so that cross makes more the point of the resurrection. The Catholic cross has you concentrating more on the suffering. Yeah, that movie was really, really hard. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Yeah, it's actually made hard because I think he's a really good filmmaker. It was it was very powerful. I was yeah. crying through the whole thing. I mean, it was crazy how and it was wasn't it an Aramaic? I, I think yes, it, yes, everything was so yeah historically accurate in that way. And, and, we, and that was a brilliant aspect of it because that's the way to do those biblical ep epics, yeah. subtitles, because, you know, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing worse than hearing John Wayne as the centurion say, surely this was the son of God. You know, it, just, <laughs> it makes it all seem kind of fun. Or I, I was never a big, uh, a big fan of, um, What's his name? Moses, uh, the guy that was in every biblical ep epic ever made. Uh, Charlton Heston. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I always, I always hate that moment at the end of the the of the Planet of the Apes, where he's pounding the sand and screaming. It's just, it's a little much. But uh, 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 the the feeling in the Mel Gibson movie, you really feel like you're there. Yeah, it, it was it was a very powerful movie in front of you, which is horrifying. Yeah, but he has, I think, he has a lot of anger, a lot of anti-Semitic anger at what happened to Jesus, which is more than just believing in the story of the resurrection. It's we still got to get some hides for this. We still, we, you know, we still got to get back at these people whom Christ forgave on the spot. Well, I mean, I again, I, I didn't read all the Gospels, but at least on the point of view of John, I mean, Jesus knew what was coming, and he was okay oh, with it. That, like, he was like, okay, I, yeah. I know this is this is going to happen, and I, you know, the prophet side of Jesus, and uh, so, you know, that was his destiny. That, well, it's easy to say in retrospect, is what I say to that. Uh, it's you know since since the gospels were generally written at the end of the first century, uh, I think you know that that to me is the most questionable thing uh, because of that because looking back at it, but in especially in Mark, the teachings and the order of them, they don't crystallize for the disciples. Uh, during Jesus' lifetime. They crystallize in the book of Acts with the, when they are given the power of speaking in tongues. And they then tell everybody who is gathered at the Temple of Jerusalem the story of Jesus in its full context. And that's when it is put into context. The, the experience of the disciples, they, they never have the context until that point. You know, not when they saw him rise from the dead. They didn't have it yet. When they meditated on the fact for weeks, then they got it. When they, or according to the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit comes into them, then they got it. And then you, of course, have the Gnostic texts and their point of view, which was, you know, we now know more of it. That seems quite different. Uh, and when I remember when I first came across the, the Pista Sophia, which I've tried to read, but it's very difficult. But just we, the, we do one of these shows on the Pista Sophia. Yeah, but that. but the idea that he came back and taught in a resurrected body to me is fascinating. Like you know whether again this is a different point of view, but it was still coming from at least around the same time as the Gospels, right? Yes, yes, uh, and. And and because of, I think, in the time of Paul, he had a certain rivalry with uh, with Gnostic preachers. Uh, I, I think that the, you know, the, the Gnosticism, by the time it came 
by the by the time they were making the Bible, uh, deciding what was canonical and what was not, anything that that reeked of Gnosticism was kicked out for sure. So if, coming into the modern era in terms of miracles, how is it, you know, is it embraced more the concept of them being possible by the Christianity overall, or is it still kind of a source of, of difference well, of opinion? Um, I, I think that the, in the, in the mainline Protestant churches, I think it's not a part of what they're doing. I think it's uh, uh, something Jesus did because he was the son of God and this, this idea of putting Jesus as the one-time thing. Um, the Catholics, I think that they're, again, everything is put into the sacraments with them. The idea of a ministry of healing, it just doesn't even come up. But for other groups, you know, evangelicals, I think uh, the the in, in this country certainly there is a tradition of faith healers and all of that kind of thing. There's there's uh, there's a little bit more of an activity there. But to me, the most the most important and the most beneficial has been the tradition of Mary Baker Eddy and the idea that you you know you heal by teaching. And you teach by healing that those two things go together uh, is, is, is certainly the more helpful and rational way of looking at it. Well, what's interesting about her viewpoint, too, it allows for other religions to enter into the mix. So that, for instance, um, there's a, a mantra book I read. Um, what is his name? I forget. He, he teaches about sort of mantras overall and he was talking, giving examples of miracles that happened doing mantras, and they were not like Jesus' miracles, most of them, but they were where, for instance, a woman needed to find the right uh, doctor for her particular illness and couldn't, and doing the mantras led her to meet this person who then helped her to recover from some sort of illness. So the, so the mantras brought the person to her. Yes, and, and there, there's, there maybe was one or two that might have been a little more miraculous, but uh, I've personally worked with mantras for about six years now, and I've had some really, really unusual things happen, but they're more day-to-day, -day, uh, not quite as, as bold as bringing someone back, back from the dead, but enough to kind of make me go, oh, okay, wake up and say, that's working, <laughs> you know? And of course, mantra works with the mind, you're doing this repetitive mantra, and then hopefully you're thinking a little bit about what it means, and you're focused on your intention over a day to Usually they want you to do a day-to-day -day practice. You have a certain commitment you do. So that fits more with her view. And, and, and that's spiritual discipline. Right. I mean, that's, that's one way of disciplining the mind. And, and again, that's that's the process by which you get there i think yes and it, it it's it's no different from learning an instrument and what's interesting is if you uh when i used to play piano more classical piano and i went through one period i had an incredible teacher and i remember the point sometimes where i i was there was one piece i was working on that you, the left hand was the dominant part, which is not normally the case. So it's your hands not quite used to being the dominant. And it was a very fast piece and beautiful. But I remember when that piece kind of came together. But every day I did this very technical, meticulous, kind of boring counting. And then when the music just kind of happens and you your fingers are just kind of going, you're like, what is that leap? I think it's the same kind of leap that happens spiritually for people. That's a really good example. I, that's a really good example because you don't know, you know, you don't know how much the spiritual discipline is taking hold until you see an evidence of it. Right. That maybe surprises you. Uh, that, uh, yeah, yeah. One of the things about spiritual discipline that I think is difficult in the Christian tradition is the influence of Ignatius Loyola 
who wrote a book called Spiritual Discipline. And it was really all about self-flagellation. Uh, it would, you know, that's, that's where you get the priests that whip their backs with the branches and whip their mm. own, you know, that kind of thing in order to, uh, bring about the spirit. And that, I, that, that has kind of perverted the idea in Christianity that discipline has to do with some form of physical denial or, or self-denial or, uh, anything, <clears throat> fasting you know, any of these things, uh, spiritual discipline is about the hard work of the mind pointed toward healing, pointing toward, you know, the positive. And according to Mary Baker Eddy, uh, beginning with love, of a love of all people, that that's an essential part of it, according to her. And according to Christ, I would say, too. Well, that the word love is mentioned so many times in the Gospels. And uh, though then we can get into a whole show about what is love at some point, too. And, 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 <laughs> and it is a spiritual discipline. You know, that, that's, it is, you know, it is something that you concentrate on and continually strive for. Continually. And if you take a few minutes out to say, oh, but this guy over here, he's a jerk. And he, you know, you could just fall right off the truck. Absolutely. Gandhi, Though sometimes Gandhi it's fun to, another, to fall off the truck. <laughs> <laughs> fun is maybe that's what the self-denial, you're denying yourself of that fun. Gandhi uh, achieved an amazing, you could call what he did a miracle uh, in, in liberating India from the British Empire. Uh, which he's credited for, or his teaching or his spiritual discipline is credited for. But he writes very honestly about the difficulty of spiritual discipline and times that he's fallen off the wagon and, and, uh, and, and what he experienced as a result. That's interesting. I, I never knew that about him. Yeah, he, he writes in my, you know, his, his, his big book, I think that is most important is My, Experi my Experiments with Truth. And he writes about them like some of them failed. You know, my, some of these experiments were, were wrong. And he himself, he ended up with the idea that you don't eat meat. You know, that you don't eat the flesh of another living being. But he had gone through a period of eating meat as a spiritual discipline, of eating meat as something that gave you life, that gave you another animal spirit, that, you know, all of these kinds of things, sort of like a Christian would, would eat the body of Christ. Mm -hmm. in, in the act of communion. And he went through a period of believing this is what you needed to do. And that experiment failed. Well, now I'm interested in reading that. <laughs> My experience with truth. Um, the more read book is the Eric Erickson book, Gandhi's Truth, where he kind of psychoanalyzes Gandhi. It's, it's from a more... Uh, it's from kind of a Western critical point of view toward Gandhi uh, and appreciates him, but at the same time kind of shows him up. His own, Gandhi's own writings, I think, are very honest very, and self-critical enough. Uh, but uh, uh, but I, my experiments in truth, I really recommend. Well, the more biographies I've read of spiritual people of all kinds, the more you see they're very human. And uh, they often have some major shadow or, or what we would consider a flaw. I, I, that, that seems to be part of the human condition. I, I'm not sure that anyone is void of that. And, and perhaps we don't get to see that so much with Jesus because of the way things are presented. Well, but there's glimpses of it. I mean, there there are glimpses of it uh, where his anger comes forth, um, where his impatience, you know, certainly comes forth. Uh, he's, in my view, a superior mind in his age. And the uh, he's surrounded by people that he has to tell them little stories to get them to understand anything. 
that he cannot just present the truth in its raw form. Hmm. So what, I mean, I guess the, the money changers, that would be a, a moment of anger in the Bible? Well, that's, uh, yeah, uh, you know, that, that's seen as him kind of losing control and uh, uh, turning tables over and having kind of a tantrum. Uh, certainly could be viewed that way. Uh, to me, uh, something that is just always a part of that story that people don't really get what it what it means is historically the act of sacrificing live animals to gain God's favor. That's why the money changers were there. So ah. that people could buy birds. You know, there's some mention of he broke the cages and the birds all flew all over the space. That's what that was about. They had these, these birds in cages or animals in cages uh, that people would buy from them. And that's why they had the money changers people would buy from them the animals to offer the sacrifice to God. And Jesus was teaching very much in the tradition of the prophets, teaching very much that this was not what God wanted. And to me, his impatience, his anger was not so much about people prizing money, but about people doing this to animals. I didn't know that. That makes well, sense. Well, everybody disagrees with me on it, but I think if you read those sections uh, and understand the history of temple sacrifices and the prophetic tradition against it, which Jesus was a part of, uh, I think it's pretty clear that that's what he was angry about. Mm -hmm. And and the other thing, if you look at uh, the the story of God offering up His Son so that we may live, so that our sins can be forgiven. It's like a human sacrifice in reverse. Oh, yes. The idea is it's trying to end that idea that you gain God's favor in this way. God says, I'm going to try to gain your favor this way. That's an interesting twist. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's a practice that has disappeared from Orthodox religion, mainstream religion in general. And in Jesus' time, it was quite wide, widespread. Yeah, I, I knew that. That No, that I'm going to have to go back and look at that again. That that certainly is a good argument. I think you have a good point of view, even if, you know, there's more than one. There's, <laughs> there's definitely more than one. I know that people that are anti-capitalistic uh, like to use that story. <laughs> no, so. I just think it's a misreading. Not that Jesus was a capitalist or not that he, he was crazy about money. There's no evidence that he ever was. And none of his miracles involve making somebody rich. You know, it's like he makes wine out of water, but he doesn't make gold out of tin. You know, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't perform miracles in the direction of making people rich or himself rich. Well, it seems to me a lot of what Jesus is about is about the fact that he sees this other world and that politics don't have anything to do with it, that this other world, which is the real world, and the rest is illusion. So to me, you know, taking on that kind of Vedic view uh, that, that making Jesus political doesn't seem to really fit. Well, I don't know. Um, I, 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 there, there is the there is the political in his situation. I mean, in other words, the the politics of the world he was living in, uh, which was the Jews under the foot of the Romans, and where he was kind of revolutionary, is that his a lot of his followers were these Romans, who are oppressing us. Uh, a lot of it, you know, he, he kind of opens the gate to people outside of the Jewish tradition, not because he wants to, but because they're the ones who come to him saying, hey, I believe, I believe. Hmm. Well, we are getting close to the end here, and it was a wonderful conversation as always. Do you have any last words you want to share with us? Oh, wow. I wish I'd prepared for this. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I, I ju just that if you think of the miracles as, as something outside of our experience, I think you kind of miss the point that uh, miracles are something that we are to find ways to perform. 
Hey, that's great. I love it. And thank you so much again for coming on the show. We loved it. I love being here. And thank you all for watching. Uh, join us next week as we continue to explore the esoteric and the obscure. Have a great week.